What's up, sports fans? My name is Lucas Weiss, host of the Wee Sports Chronicles podcast. We got a fantastic episode for you today with two great guests in this World Series-themed podcast. First up, Peter Abraham. He is a national baseball columnist for the Boston Globe. I chat with Peter about reporting on the World Series live in Arlington, Texas. His approach to covering this matchup between the Dodgers and the Rays. Mookie Betts and how... Peter's experience covering him with the Boston Red Sox translates to his success with the Dodgers and the Tampa Bay Rays and their approach to baseball and how this has become a major talking point within the sport. This conversation is then followed by a chat with Bill Shaken, the national baseball writer for the Los Angeles Times. I chat with Bill all things Los Angeles Dodgers from finally trying to win the World Series for the first time since 1988 how this team compared to the previous two teams that made the World Series in 2017 and 2018, as well as Clayton Kershaw and whether his perception in the postseason isn't necessarily warranted. The Wii Sports Chronicles podcast is available on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. So make sure to like, rate, watch, and subscribe to all three of those channels. We got a great World Series podcast ahead with Peter Abraham of the Boston Globe and Bill Shaken of the Los Angeles Times next on the Wii Sports Chronicles podcast. All right, as I said off the top, I'm pleased to be joined by Peter Abraham. He is a baseball columnist for the Boston Globe. He is covering the 2020 World Series. And I'm pleased to have Peter join me today on the Wii Sports Chronicles podcast. Peter, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's my pleasure. And and out of all the guests that I've had, I've, I've done about a little over 70 of these shows. You you win the honors for the most Twitter followers, uh, 119,000. So, so you must be uh, you must be doing something right, my friend. Well, I'm, I'm covering a very popular team. I think that's all I'm really doing right. <laughs> right, right on. So um, we'll, we'll get into the World Series matchup. Unfortunately, it does not include the Boston Red Sox, for those listeners wondering. It includes the L.A. Dodgers and Tampa Bay Rays. But you are in Arlington right now covering this surreal World Series. What has this experience been like for you thus far? Well, you know, it's um, actually last night was kind of refreshing. It was the first game I've covered all year that had fans in the stands. Mm. And uh, it was nice to hear actually people reacting to the game instead of the can noise that we had uh, for most of the season so i enjoyed it it was my first time at the park uh, i thought the park was very nice i see a lot of people i haven't seen in a long time uh, so yeah i enjoyed it i, I thought it was uh, it was an entertaining game too so i i really enjoyed the first night compared to a normal world series where i'm sure there's obviously more fans more media in attendance this is obviously limited giving the the times right now that we're living through this global pandemic. How has your approach changed? I know that you just said that you covered the Boston Red Sox in this abbreviated season without fans, and I'm sure through a lot of Zoom calls, but how do you rely on just your relationships that you've built throughout your years covering the game to be able to report on this World Series? Yeah, well, I mean... um it's a good question because you can't really do your normal reporting. We're not allowed in the clubhouse. Uh, we're not allowed to be on the field for batting practice. 
Um, I know a number of the Dodger players. Um, I know a number of the Rays players. Those are guys I would, I, would, I think, normally be able to talk to. Uh, you know, I'm pretty friendly with Dave Roberts and Kevin Cash. I might have got a couple minutes with them. So that's really not possible anymore. So you, you're doing everything on Zoom along with everybody else. Um, there's really not much in the way of exclusive interviews. There's a few few people, I, you know, in covering these playoffs I reached out to and, and maybe supplemented my coverage. But when your team's not in it, you, you know, you're sort of more of an observer than you are a participant. Like covering the Red Sox in 2018, you're right in the middle of it. You, you have a lot of access to your team. When your team isn't in the World Series, you know, you're covering, yeah, I think, more from, um, you know, maybe 10,000 feet above and, and covering what, what's sort of the best story of the day. And you're not you're not involved in the day-to-day, you know, who's going to win, who's going to lose. You know, that's I think that's less of a concern for my readers than just trying to come up with a good story every day. Which do you prefer? Do you prefer the 10,000 feet above or do you prefer that sort of day-to-day with the Red Sox being in, in, in a playoff run or going to the World Series? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's obviously much better for the Boston Globe if the Red Sox <laughs> are in the World Series. And I've covered the, um, you know, I covered the 2018 series and the 2013 series. Uh, and it was, you know, it was great fun. And, and uh, good for the paper, we had, I think, in Los Angeles a couple of years ago, we had eight people there covering it, you know. So it was, uh, it was, it was very good for us. Um, you know, we gained a lot of readers. We gained a lot of attention. Uh, you know, for me, it's, um, you know, the job is the job either way. You have to write something. But. It's, um, I enjoy when, when uh, the team I'm covering is in it. I, I covered the Yankees for a few years. I got to cover them in the World Series in 2009. It's just it's exciting, and, and you put in a whole year covering the team, and it's, it's kind of fun to get to the World Series and see what they're going to do. So let's let's focus in a little bit on this matchup. Dodgers-Rays, this episode's being recorded just after Game 1, where the Dodgers beat the Rays 8-3. to Peter, of course, this is a Dodgers team that's been to the World Series three of the past four years. You said that you saw them, of course, when you covered the Red Sox beating the Dodgers in 2018 in five games. How is this Dodgers team different than 2018? And how has Mookie Betts really impacted just the intangibles of this team now that they're back in the World Series two years later? Yeah, I wrote about that before game one. And I think when the Dodgers looked at their team, they felt like they had they had a missing component. And it wasn't necessarily a right fielder, but it was a player who I think they wanted to get who would give them some leadership, give them some experience. And they targeted Mookie Betts, were able to make the trade, then were able to sign him. And I think now that he is signed, I see a different kind of Mookie than I saw when he was with the Red Sox. He's, he's much more, I think, more vocal. He's more expressive. He's expressing his leadership qualities, I think, a lot easier than he did in Boston. When he got to the Red Sox, he was a young player in a veteran clubhouse. They had guys like Dustin Pedroia and David Ortiz, who were clearly the leaders, and, and he was following them. Now that he's gotten to the Dodgers, he's the only guy in the clubhouse with the World Series ring. And, and uh, that commands a lot of respect. And, and he's won an MVP, and he's been a four-time All-Star. He's different than the guy who arrived with the Red Sox when he was a young player. And the Dodgers have taken to that. And, and he's the guy, in the example I, I wrote about the other day, they had an optional workout before game one of the World Series coming off of winning the NLCS. Well, they had two busloads of players who showed up at the park for this optional workout. And that's because you have a guy like Mookie around who's setting a good example. Well, it's so interesting because Clayton Kershaw said after the game one that 
not only is, you know, you can look at Mookie's defense or his base running and that's all great, but it's the consistent day out, day in, day out work ethic that really separates Mookie from the rest. And, and, and you just mentioned it just in terms of his presence in the locker room. How How is it different sort of reporting on Mookie now? Because you obviously knew him back from Boston. And how impactful is he just with the more younger guys on this on this Dodgers team? Well, you know, I, I think it, it goes back to his accomplishments and, and they respect what he's done. And the other thing about Mookie that I think resonates is he's not a guy who relies on any one thing. He's not just a power hitter. He's not just a good defender. He's not just a good base runner. He's all of those things. So if you're a player on his team and you're looking for advice in some aspect of the game, it's a good chance he can give it to you unless it's about pitching. And my guess was if you gave Mookie a chance, he'd probably be a pretty good pitcher. But he – um. You know, he's a guy who he doesn't have to hit to impact the game. He can do, he can help win a game in a lot of different ways. And I think that's what's enabled him to, to so quickly uh, ingratiate himself into the Dodgers clubhouse and, and become one of their team leaders. And obviously, the success has been on the field. They're the best team in the during the regular season. They've gone through the playoffs and now they're in the World Series. So I think when a, when a good player gets somewhere and he, he does those things, it doesn't take long for him to become a prominent member of that team and, and really become one of the team leaders. What's the temperature of the Boston fan base today after uh, what they saw with uh, Mookie in game good. one? <laughs> Not good, eh? That's what I thought. No, it's, um, you know, I mean, it's really, it's a disaster for the Red Sox. They, they mm-hmm. weren't prepared financially to take on a contract like that. They should have been. They should have anticipated this would, this would be happening. I don't think they ever found a way like the Angels did with Mike Trout, to, to form a relationship with Mookie that would be solid, that, that would lead to a deal. Uh, they kept changing managers. They kept changing general managers. Uh, they, they never really were able to get to a point where they felt comfortable that they could sign him, and they traded him. I, I think it was a colossal mistake that, that this happened. It's an institutional failure. I wrote that in January when the trade happened. Uh, the Dodgers had their payroll set up in such a way that they didn't have many long-term contracts that they could swoop in and not only trade for bets, but they could sign bets. Uh, and, and it's really, it's um, it's just a huge mistake that the Red Sox weren't prepared to do the same. And and they missed out on, you know, to me, this is a guy who was going to be their best position player since Ted Williams. When you look at the overall capabilities of what he has, and they, they blew a chance to keep, you know, the, that guy. And, and how do you do that? But they that's what they did. Well, it's what Ken Rosenthal was saying on the World Series broadcast last night. Like, I know the rationale is, well, this whole financial stability for years to come, things like that. But you're missing out on a transcendent player that, 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 could, that showed last night his ability to have all five tools working for him at, at once. And when you're a franchise like the Boston Red Sox that has the money to pay a player like Boogie Betts, unlike maybe the Rays or the Blue Jays, as you say, I mean, you're, you're just missing out on a, on a once-in-a-generation type player. Yeah, I mean, the Red Sox are supposed to be the team that steals that player away, not gives that player up. I mean, the Red Sox should be in a position where they take that player away from another team. You know, not that they give that player to another team. And I, it's, uh, I think it's something that their ownership and, you know, the, the executives in that front office need to look at and say, how do we get to a point where we botch this up the way we did? Because it's a terrible mistake and – and, uh, and, you know, the other thing about Mookie is, you know, he's a really good guy. It's not like, a, a, you know, Bryce Harper can be a little abrasive. Everybody doesn't really like Manny Machado. 
Um, you know, there's nothing like that with Mookie. He's he's an engaging guy. He's a family man. He, you know, there's nothing about him that would say, you know, that there's some red flag here that we got to be careful about. There, there was nothing like that. I want to shift gears to talk a little bit about the Rays because, of course, you've, you know, covering the Red Sox, you've seen many Boston-Tampa uh, matchups and what Kevin Cash is doing. And, and, and I watched his pre-World Series media day avail- availability and some reporter asked him about him sort of changing the way the game is played. And Kevin was a little bit taken aback by that. He just said how this is sort of our approach to winning baseball games. And, you know, and that's how we think through. And the Rays have been very advanced in a lot of those new ways of looking at the game. Do you think that that Kevin Cash is sort of, and the way the Rays have played are, are changing the way baseball is being played and how is Kevin influencing perhaps other franchises around the league to maybe work their team in, in a similar way? Yeah, I think with the Rays, it's not necessarily Kevin. It's sort of a collaborative effort. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the front office works very closely with the coaching staff uh, to incorporate data into their game planning and into their decision-making during the game. Uh, you know, it's it's. I don't think it's that necessarily – Eric Neander, the, the president of baseball operations by himself, or Kevin Cash by himself. I think it's a, it's a lot of people working together to try to make this happen and try to figure out how can we win with a $90 million payroll. <laughs> and they've figured out a way to, to win. Um, I don't know that it's a way that can necessarily win a championship because I think to win a, to win a championship, you need to have that, you know, the, at least some core of superstar players to get over the top, and, and they don't have that. They have what amounts to 28 very helpful players some of whom have very specific things that they can do that can help you in a game but they don't have that one guy where you say you know this is the one guy who can lift us over the top um it'll be interesting to see how the real series plays out because if the rays were to come back and beat the dodgers i think the next day you're going to have a lot of owners come in and talk to their gm and say well why are we spending 150 million if this team just won it paying 60 million dollars less so that's the way they can change the they can change the game but on the other hand you look at the popularity of the Dodgers and the Yankees and the Cardinals and the Red Sox and, and the success that they've had both on the field and financially. And I don't think you're going to see those kind of teams go away. But if you're a smaller market team, the Rays are certainly a team you'd want to emulate. Well, I know the Toronto Blue Jays are certainly uh, trying to emulate. And of course, our manager, Charlie Montoya, worked alongside Kevin Cash and, and, and has implemented some of his similar me- metrics and, and strategies. But I just find it just interesting watching this Rays team, Peter, throughout this postseason and just their defense. Like, I haven't seen a team play this good a defense in just a very long time. Just being at the right place at the right time, making those really great plays, whether it was Margot in the outfield or even Randy Rosarena, who's worth like $90,000 on their payroll, you know, playing so well for, for a rookie. So it's just amazing how... They just the last few years, and especially this year, have gotten the most out of their talent for not a lot of money. Yeah, and, and I think the way they've done that is that their defensive positioning is really good. They, they obviously put in a lot of time studying the other teams, uh, using the data to figure out where to position their players. Nine times out of ten, it, it works out perfectly for them, and then they have the second baseman standing somewhere where you don't think you should stand and the ball is right at them. Or they have a four-man outfield and it goes to the guy who's the fourth man. Um, and in the, the ALCS, they did that time and time again, and it worked out great for them. Uh, the other thing that they do is they're not afraid to, to change things around. They have guys who can play multiple positions. They'll, they'll pinch hit in the middle of a game or pinch run in the middle of a game. 
the second baseman goes to left field and the, the right fielder goes to center field. They can do all of these different sort of things. And, and that versatility really pays off for them. And it's, it's, it, the other part of it is too, they're not afraid to do it. I think some teams, when you have older players who, who make a lot of money, it's hard to tell that guy, Hey, we want you to start doing this now. And that guy's going to say, well, I've gotten this far by being a, a third baseman who hits third. I, I, I don't want to play second base sometimes and occasionally hit sixth. So, but when you have younger players who don't make as much money, they, they're very happy to be in the big leagues and they'll do what you, they'll do what you tell them to do. And that's why when, when players get to a certain point with the Rays, they get traded and because they become too expensive. So it's, um, you know, like, like I think for the Blue Jays, for instance, it would be hard to say, uh, you know, to tell Randall Gritchick say, or, you know, hey, we need you to start playing this way now. Mm-hmm. Well, he's going to say, well, I played this other way my entire career. Why would I start doing that? And, but you can influence, you know, whether it's Kevin Biggio or Vlad Jr. or, you know, Bichette, you know, those guys you can maybe influence, but it's harder to do it with older guys. And um, it'll be interesting to see where Charlie goes with this because the Blue Jays should be, you know, they, they have the revenue to certainly do more than the Rays mm-hmm. do in terms of their payroll, but they can keep some of those, you know, some of those ideas that the Rays have, but supplement it maybe with better players. That's a conversation for another day in terms of our management, whether or not they're willing to spend or not on, uh, on getting good. Be, I guess. For sure. Out. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I, I agree with you there, but look, we're, we're, you know, you know, game two tonight, of course, and you know, the, the rest of the series, it's sort of the classic. You got the, the balanced lineup in the Dodgers against the pitching of the Tampa Bay Rays. How do the Rays adjust after last night just in terms of dealing with just a Dodgers lineup that just seems to keep coming at you in bunches and through the whole lineup? It's not just the top-heavy portion of the lineup. It's one through nine. Yeah, it's really it's a relentless lineup. And, and Dave Roberts set up a you know right-left, 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 all the way down. Uh, when he needed a pinch hitter, he went to Kike Hernandez, and he had an RBI single. And you know that kind of helped fuel that beginning that that one. And then the game, it's, it's going to be hard to come up with a way to, to make your decisions against the Dodgers. And in game one, I thought, you know, they, they left their starting pitcher, Tyler Glass, now in the game too long. Mm-hmm. Maybe that was because their bullpen was beaten up after the ALCS. But when the Dodgers kind of, you know, when, when Glass now started getting tired, the Dodgers pounced. So Cash is going to have to be careful with Blake Snell. Snell hasn't really gone much more than five innings in a start this year. So they're going to have to have their bullpen lined up and, and ready to go. They didn't use too many of their primary guys last night, so they should be in good shape. So this is going to be try to get five out of Snell and then try to piece together those four innings with their better relievers, but they're going to need a lead to do that. Otherwise, the Dodgers are going to keep pressing. Yeah, and like I think last night's the classic case. The Rays did not have, have a lead in the entire game, and I think this is a team where they got to have the lead and then just rely on those good pitching arms to just propel them to victory because like you say, I mean, the Dodgers, they're, they're just relentless on their lineup. Yeah. In the ALCS, the Rays really played well from ahead. And, and even if there was only a one or two run lead, their defense was so good and their relief pitching was so good that they were able to hold it. And, and that's what makes them tough. But when they have to play from behind, when they're relying on somebody, you know, to come up with a big hit offensively, that's when they're not as good of a team. And once the Dodgers had that five run inning, you know, you, I think, from watching them in the ALCS, I thought, well, they're, they're not going to be able to come back from this. And I think the Rays acknowledged that in a way by who they used out of their bullpen. They used their their bottom guys. I think they understood that, you know, that there's not much of a chance of us being able to come back here. 
Well, and they and they seem to feed off that resilience. I mean, they were down in the you know one zero in the ALDS to the Yankees. Look, I mean that you know coming they're up three zero in the ALCS and coming back to Game Seven. You'd think that all the momentum is with Houston, and then Tampa squashes that. So. I think Kevin Cash said after the game, like, you know, they've bounced back all year. Let's see, try and win another game with, with all, all hands on deck, essentially. Yeah, they, they need to, you know, if they can get 1-1 one, one and they get to that day off and, and kind of get their bullpen reset, they'll be in good shape. It'll be interesting. And then, you know, then they'll have home field advantage for, for three games. So we'll see how that works. But, you know, they, got, they, need, they need to get a good effort out of Blake Snell in game two, no doubt about it. So, Pete, just on more of a big picture, just approach to just covering the World Series. So, are you the only Boston Globe reporter writing on the World Series? I am. Yeah, we would we would normally have two people here, um, even if the Red Sox weren't in it. But um, you know, that's not the case with the pandemic. And I'm not even sure, to be honest with you, if we could have got two credentials. I think they were only MLB was only giving multiple credentials to the teams that were in the series. Um, so it's. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm doing a column. We're using Associated Press for the game story. Uh, our, our other columnist, one of our other columnists, Dan Shaughnessy, is writing some baseball columns, but not necessarily off the World Series. So it's, um, yeah, we've had to make a lot of adjustments. We, we This was the first time we didn't cover every single Red Sox game in person. Uh, we didn't go to Florida. We didn't go to Georgia. Um, we went to, I think, all of the games in New York. I went to Buffalo to see the Jays. Um, but it was uh, yeah, it was very strange for us because we we would normally have at least two, if not three, people in every Red Sox game, um, and home games we would have four or five, and it was um, yeah, it, it was weird for me to see, you know, um, one one Red Sox story maybe with a dateline from a game, you know, when, when you know I mean, that you know the covering the Red Sox is what we do, and it was it was strange for me to see that, but. You know, as with that, I think everything in society, everybody had to make adjustments about what they would normally do. And maybe just to, to finish off, just walk me through and, and our listeners through just the process of writing the story. And I'm sure you're still on a tight deadline, even though you're the only Boston Globe reporter there. And just how you feed off that, you know, as a journalist, especially in these big moments like the World Series. Yeah, well, I mean, it's unfortunate that I've had some experience doing that, but it's, it's basically, you know, when I first started, it was only newspaper deadlines, and if you miss a newspaper deadline, you're really in trouble. Mm-hmm. Now with uh, our website, we have, I think, two times as many subscribers to our website as we do to the actual newspaper. So I needed to get my story in by 12.10 a.m. to make our last edition of the newspaper, and then I, I pretty much had as long as I wanted to write for our website. So... Um, we had we had editors standing by to, to work with me at the end of the game. Now last night, when the, when the game's in hand and, you, and you're not expecting any sort of you know uh, walk off home run or anything like that, it's a lot easier than if it's two two in the eighth inning and you're not sure who's going to win and you know whoever's going to come up and, and hit a home run, then you got to really scramble. And the other part of it that's that's different now with the pandemic is you used to be able to um, write some stuff and then run down to the clubhouse and look for the player you needed to write, put in your story and, and try to talk to that player and then run back up to the clubhouse. Well, now you're sort of at the mercy of when the teams will make the guys available on zoom. So I really needed Mookie best for my story. It turned out he happened to be the last player that the Dodgers made available. So I was you know waiting and waiting, but there's nothing you can do. You can't, you know, you, you're sort of at the mercy of the team and it's just, um, it's frustrating, but it's something you just have to get used to. And, and work around and our our first edition story 
didn't have any bet uh, quotes from Mookie, but our later stories did. And um, that probably wouldn't have been the case a year ago. But, you know, I'm, I guess I looked at it like I'm happy just to be at the World Series and get to do what I love. I'm sure that uh, 2018 World Series Game 3 was a real treat to, to write, that one that won 18 innings. Yeah, it was um, It was funny that we actually um, held our last edition, and uh, which at an enormous cost because everybody needed to get uh, the, the printers and everybody and the <laughs> delivery guys all needed to get paid overtime. But they made that decision, and we got actually uh, two stories in the paper off of that game for our last edition. Uh, which we were all very proud of. I, I have one of those papers at home. and um, But, you know, it's, it's the World Series, and your team's in the World Series, and I, I can promise you that if it was the Jays, uh, you know, the, the Toronto papers would do the same. But it's, um, yeah, when, when your team's in the World Series, it, it's almost like you'll do anything you have to do to get that story in the paper. Peter Abraham is a baseball columnist for the Boston Globe. He is reporting live from the 2020 World Series in Arlington between the Dodgers and the Rays. Make sure to check out his work at the Boston Globe. Peter, it was a pleasure to talk to you. All the best for the rest of the World Series. And thanks for joining me today on the We Sports Chronicles podcast. Well, thanks for having me on. Hopefully we can, we can run across each other and, uh, at a game in Toronto someday. All right, as I said off the top, uh, I'm pleased to be joined today on this World Series-themed edition of the Wii Sports Chronicles podcast by Bill Shaken. Bill is a national writer for the Los Angeles Times, and he's covering the World Series, which include his the Los Angeles Dodgers and the Tampa Bay Rays. Bill, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great. I'm really excited to have you on. We're, we're going to talk a little bit about the Rays and Dodgers matchup in just a bit. But first thing I want to clarify is, are you in Arlington or are you covering the World Series from Los Angeles? Uh, I'm covering the World Series from Los Angeles. We do have two reporters in Arlington. There are limits this year, of course, because of all the health and safety protocols about how many folks can be in any one place at any one time. So, we got it covered from there, and we got it covered from home. And what sorts of challenges does it present for you covering it from home? Because obviously, if you were there live, you know you you could interact with players, you know, in human interaction in normal times. But of course, the interactions are limited to Zoom because of the pandemic. And I'm sure, compared to watching it, let's say from home. Do you feel like you're missing some things, like from whether it's setting the scene or things you may notice that the TV broadcast just doesn't show you on on, on TV? Well, certainly you would have the chance to observe things that you wouldn't see if the television camera does not pick them up. Um, On the other hand, we don't get to interact with players. The broadcast networks, they're the official rights holders, which mostly is Fox in the United States. Um, their broadcasters do have access to the players, as you can see if you watch after the game. I believe MLB Network does or ESPN. But for the writers, it's all done on the Zoom calls that you mentioned. And so access to players isn't any different for me here than it would be if I were at the ballgame. Do you feel like in general, and, and look, I mean, I think 
what what baseball writers and media have done during this pandemic to adjust has been fantastic. But do you feel like overall there's been a bit of a decline just in the quality of the reporting and the storytelling just because of these limitations? Sure. I mean, if you can't get to know someone on a one-to-one basis, which is what we do every day when we talk to players on the field or in the clubhouse, then it's a lot harder to develop the sources and relationships that get the good answer because, you know, a, a face that they see on the other end of a zoom call, or maybe just a voice is pretty impersonal. Mm-hmm. Um, what's going to happen going forward. We don't know, obviously what's going to happen with the virus, which determines everything. Uh, the players for a while have pushed for you know, a bit less of the access to the clubhouse. And so I think everybody will sit down and see when it turns out to be okay to go in a clubhouse health wise, whether that's something baseball will do and we'll just have to adapt however that goes. Because I'm sure that as I've interviewed some, some baseball journalists on this podcast, the, the clubhouse interactions are so vital for a story, whether it's the one-on-one interaction with a player, whether it's after a scrum you pull a player or a manager aside to get a question that nobody else does. Whereas now, since all the same media are on the same Zoom calls, getting the same quotes and information, I guess you have to rely more on the relationships that you've built in all the years covering baseball to really stand out from the crowd compared to your peers covering the World Series. Well... That would be true pretty much under any circumstance because you're right. You want to give people a story that they can't get anywhere else. So this just makes it a little harder to do. Um, I can give you an example in case of the Dodgers. Kenley Jansen, who has been the Dodgers closer for many, many years, um, has struggled a little bit this postseason. And so for a while, early in the postseason, the questions were all about Kenley's role and how it might evolve going forward with the Dodgers trust him in the ninth inning. And you could ask Dave Roberts that every day because the Dodgers manager is always available on the zoom every day. But if this were the regular situation and we had access to the clubhouse, I could go up and talk to Kenley Jansen about that as well. What are you feeling? What kind of adjustments are you making? What's going to make this come out, you know, the right way on the other end after you get through your struggles. I mean, he's a good guy, and I'm sure he would have been able to say a few things. But in the Zoom format, teams only bring two or three players maybe after a game into the Zoom room. And it's just logistics. You can't bring everybody in there. But Jansen was never one of those guys until he had gotten to the other side of the struggle. So the story of what he's doing in between, from Kelly's point of view, we weren't able to share. You mentioned earlier how... There's a team of LA Times reporters covering the World Series. Some are in Arlington at Globe Life Field, and of course, you're you're reporting from home. How do you divvy up, Bill, the assignments? Is it before the game? Is it actually before the World Series? How does that process happen? Well, I don't know that there's any one way, and it depends a lot on you know who's involved and what the storylines are, but. You know, fortunately, we have a talented group and also a group that's done this before because this is the Dodgers' third trip to the World Series in four years. So usually the writers just sit down among ourselves and split up what we think are the best stories and 
it doesn't really take a lot of time. And, you know, for example, we'll all, you know, we can't sit next to each other in the press box these days. So over email or text or whatever, we can sit and say, okay, who's doing this? Who's doing that? And it takes a couple minutes. And just in terms of the actual process, writing the stories on the World Series, what would you say, like, during the game and post-game is sort of the biggest difference from you there versus you at home, or is it relatively the same? Biggest difference probably is that if I were at the game and they were doing live in-person press conferences as they normally would, I would have to hustle out of the press box and depending on what ballpark it was, maybe even cut through the crowd to find a stairwell or to find an elevator to get down to the basement level where there's probably some press conference room set up and just fight everybody to get there. And then after the interviews are done, you go to the clubhouse, talk to the players who didn't come in for the group interviews and then hustle back upstairs. Uh, in this case, the game is over and I make the long and strenuous walk of about six feet from the couch to my desk and we're all ready to go. Yeah. I mean like in like, I guess even in like these weird times, that that thrill of writing for a deadline and, and trying to make the deadline. And of course, we're recording this episode just after game one of the World Series where the Dodgers won eight to three over the Rays. The game was pretty much, you know, ha- you know wrapped up and you, you knew what the result was. So making the deadline probably wasn't that too much of a challenge. But if, if, if the game is in doubt and it goes to extra innings, I'm sure for newspapers, there's that scramble of trying to make the deadline for the newspaper, but also the digital deadline as well. So do you still, do, like, even with all the years of covering baseball, do you still get that thrill and excitement, especially with it's the World Series, one of the biggest events for the sport? Yeah, I think people always like to ask, you know, do you root for a particular team? And the answer, honestly, is no. We root for good stories and, you know, the better it is for time frames, the better it is for the story. So the more time you have, probably it's going to read a little cleaner. But the advantage with the web, as you noticed, is that the deadline is whenever you are done. Mm-hmm. And everybody can read it whenever they want. Um, for the printed newspaper, we still sell hundreds of thousands of those every day. And we have a loyal following that they want to find out what happened with the Dodgers. And they want it on their doorstep with their coffee. and. Fortunately, with the 5 o'clock Pacific time start, we're able to provide them this morning with an eight-page special section. You mentioned earlier how the Los Angeles Dodgers, this is their third World Series appearance in the last four years. How does this team bill compare to the previous two that made the World Series? They compare in that they headed into the World Series each time with great expectations, I think the greatest difference is Mookie Betts. And Mm. I know that's an easy thing to say based on what happened in game one, where he basically took over the game from an offensive point of view. But the Dodgers have had a talented team now for a few years. They've won the division, in fact, eight consecutive years. And the one thing the Dodger folks, and I mean the management and front office, had said is, what we really want to do is we want to win the division every year. That should be our goal. Because once you get in the playoffs, anything can happen. It's a crapshoot. Pick your favorite cliche. So they thought, you know, if we can get into the playoffs 
as much as we can, you know, we're going to win that lottery one of these years. And when Mookie Betts became available, they actually changed the thinking a little bit because they didn't need Mookie Betts to win the division. They were going to do that anyway. They needed Mookie Betts to win the World Series. And although Andrew Friedman, who's the Dodgers president of baseball operations, had never signed a player for more than $100 million, which, you know, to you and me is a lot of money, but in the world of Major League Baseball for star players, it's probably not. Mm-hmm. Uh, they committed close to $400 million to both trade for bets and his salary this year and then extend him for another 12. And this is why. Everybody saw it in game one. And as we speak, the Dodgers are three wins away from a world championship. And as millions and millions of people will remind you in Los Angeles, it's been 32 years and we're tired of watching Kirk Gibson videos. <laughs> yeah, Kirk Gibson, it's, it's still even played up in, in Canada when SportsCenter does the top 10 World Series moments. I want to talk about that 1988 team because it feels like as you just said, like Dodgers fans, like they're constantly reminded by it, haunted by it, mixed emotions by it since it's so long since the team has won the World Series. Do the players from your experience covering the team, like do they understand the the pressure and burden on them to sort of be that first team to, to, to snap the the winless streak of, of, of World Series? They've heard about it extensively. And again, because they've been in the World Series in 2017 and 18, they, they know all about the history. Uh, how they deal with it is up to each individual person, but uh, clearly they're very aware of that. And of course, the difference is in 1988, the Dodgers were not supposed to win. Mm-hmm. The A's, Jose Canseco and Mark McGuire, they had won 104 games. The Dodgers had Kirk Gibson for that one at bat that everybody remembers, but he didn't play again the rest of the World Series because of the injury. And at one point, Bob Costas on NBC talks about the lineup the Dodgers were rolling out for one of the World Series games as arguably the worst lineup in World Series history. (laughs) Uh, Compare that to this year and the past two Dodger World Series appearances where there's a lot of money, there's a lot of payroll, there's a lot of talent. The Dodgers are supposed to win. Back to Mookie Betts for a moment, because one of the stories that you wrote last night was the title of the story is Mookie Betts wrecks havoc with stolen bases in World Series opener. And for me, it was sort of a throwback because I think baseball has evolved to it's the home run or it's the strikeout and and the stolen base isn't as prevalent as it once was. And to see Mookie Betts do that in, in that fifth inning, getting two bases and being mentioned in the names of Babe Ruth, it's quite impressive. Did you find that? Like, did you get that sense that this was sort of a throwback, if you will, seeing, you know, someone like Mookie Betts to showcase that speed on the bases? It's just a dimension that we've lost in baseball, unfortunately, because baseball is basically run now as a risk management exercise. Mm. And what I mean is, the front offices have been taken over by Wall Street guys who evaluate everything, analytics, and it's not just for player performance, business analytics in terms of how much tickets are priced, such like that. The whole organization runs like that. So on the baseball side, folks have figured out that the best thing you can do on the bases a lot of times, not all the time, but most of the time, 
is to just stand there and wait for somebody to hit a home run. And you can work the percentages and the averages and, you know, well, what's your expectancy of scoring with, you know, a runner on first base and nobody out and one out and what if you get thrown out? And so the ultimate calculation has been it is not in your team's best interest to try to run because you might get thrown out and 27 outs are the currency of the game. Mm-hmm. But the exception is when you have somebody who's really good at it and it's not so much that you're putting up, you know, huge stolen base totals as your percentage is really good. And if you can steal bases at about an 80, 85% success rate, even the sabermetric folks will say you should do it. But the game is such now that most of those folks have been weeded out because teams are looking on the pitching side for guys who throw 95 miles an hour and on the hitting side for guys who hit diggers. Mm -hmm. And so the Mookie plays represent something that's really been lost. And it wasn't just the stolen bases. It's the fact that pitchers now don't deal with stolen bases as much. Mm -hmm. So Glass now, who was a Tampa Bay pitcher last night, was saying, you know, I got to work on my moves on the, when runners are on the bases, you just don't deal with runners running that much. They just mostly stand there. And then when Mookie could get to third base by stealing second and third, he put himself in position to score on an out. And because he's fast and smart, he was able to score from third base on was essentially, you know, a ground ball in the infield and mm-hmm. he still beat it out. And that, that changed the whole tenor of the game. How have the the Dodgers players embraced Mookie this season, though? I know that Clayton Kershaw said after the game that he's just so impressed by Mookie's day in, day out consistency and work ethic. And he said he was just he's just a special player. How have how the teammates warmed up and, and embraced Mookie as one of their one of their own. Well, when Mookie got here, he had one year left on his contract, so no one knew whether he was going to stay with the Dodgers beyond this year. And because the Dodgers have a pretty tight knit group, most of the key players have been here for a couple of years now, at least. Um, he could have just faded into the background. Dodgers were doing pretty well without him. And he decided when he was come, he was going to be a leader. And so he started getting involved in team meetings and talking to guys. And Justin Turner is a tremendous leader. He's been that way for years for the Dodgers. Clayton Kershaw, of course, has everybody's respect and Kenley Jansen. But Mookie decided, like, if I'm going to be part of the team, I want to be part of the leadership of the team. And, And it's paid off. Everybody respects him. And I think one of the things that, really made people stand up and take notice is when baseball finally got going the season of course didn't start until you know the end of July but not long after there was the protest movement in sports Mm -hmm. it was started by the NBA players who said we're not going to play we want to put a spotlight here on racial injustice Mm -hmm. and then it started to spread to baseball and Mookie said you know I'm not comfortable playing whatever day it was and the Dodgers could have said, we understand, you know, take a seat. We got your back. But they said, no, no, if you're not playing, we're not playing. Mm. You tweeted last night, Bill, Clayton Kershaw 2020 postseason. 2.88 ERA, three walks, 31 strikeouts. That's all you tweeted. Does Clayton Kershaw need a World Series ring for the narrative that he can't perform in the postseason? 
to finally be squashed. You know, I hate the term narrative. It's sort of just this jargony thing that's evolved, like with some sort of evil context to it. But yeah, yeah the, the storyline has been certainly that he's a really good pitcher in the regular season, which he is. His career earned run average is the lowest of anybody that's pitched that many innings. And his ERA in the postseason is not so good. It's about two runs higher. And it doesn't really matter why there are good reasons why some of them are what we might call mitigating factors, but people are going to believe what they want to believe. The good thing is because of the phenomenon called recency bias, (laughs) people remember best what they remember last. And if the Dodgers win a world series this year and Clayton has another performance like he put up last night, I don't think anyone's going to really care that he couldn't get the Cardinals out in the playoffs in the seventh inning seven years ago. Last question for you, Bill. So we record this episode. It's, you know, game two tonight. How do you see the rest of this series unfolding? And how do the Dodgers, you know, protect against what the Rays' strength is, which is, of course, their pitching and their bullpen? Score early, I guess. Mm. They got ahead last night, and they didn't see the best arms that the Rays have to offer. Uh, Tonight, the Dodgers will get, in game two, Blake Snell, who's, of course, a Cy Young Award winner. The Rays still have what their manager, Kevin Cash, called their stable of arms, throwing 98. So all those guys are ready to go. Um, I don't think there's any pretense this is going to be any kind of four-game sweep, but the Rays haven't hit well during the playoffs they've played well they played exceptional defense their pitching's been terrific but you know if they don't hit maybe their stay will be short as well well the los angeles Dodgers are trying to be like the los angeles lakers the city of champions it could be basketball and baseball as the dodgers are three wins away from a world series championship bill shaken he's a national baseball writer for the los angeles times bill i know you're really busy so i greatly appreciate that you took the time today speak on the World Series on the We Sports Chronicles podcast. All right, take care.